This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I've got a special one for you. So this is a very special guest, and his name is John Lennox. So he's a Christian apologist, mathematician, and bioethicist from Northern Ireland. He's the author of many, many books to include Can Science Explain Everything, which is the namesake for today's episode, Seven Days That Divide the World, Gunning for God, and God's Undertaker. So this is a Christian apologist that has done some some very, very high-profile public debates with noted atheist thinkers like Richard Dawkins and Michael Shermer and Peter Singer and the late Christopher Hitchens, but he's also an emeritus professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford and an emeritus fellow in mathematics and philosophy of science at Green Templeton College, Oxford University. He's also an associate fellow uh, for the Said Business School and the senior fellow at the Trinity Forum. And this guy's, I mean, I could keep going on his resume and all the things that he's done and all the things that he's still doing, but I just got to tell you, that there are certain times whenever I get into an interview where I'm like, I'm more excited than I normally am because I'm always excited to talk to people on the show because it's like, man, they've got some some interesting stuff and I, it's my job to get those nuggets out of their brain and through the microphone and into your ears and, and all those types of things. But I was so excited to talk to John Lennox because he is one of the best Christian apologists that, that I can think of, but also he's a guy that has done a tremendous amount of, of deep thinking. And he's gone into the lion's den in these debates on multiple occasions, and he's come out looking great every single time. And so I was just so almost reverent of, of being able to talk to him and get to spend a little bit of time with him, especially guys, because maybe you don't know this, but John Lennox had a stroke not that long ago. And so we, we kind of kept it to a shorter interview and, and all those types of things. So he's still in the middle of recovering from a stroke. And he's like, no, I'm absolutely looking forward to talking to you. And he really, really enjoyed it. But in this interview, we talk about a lot of different things. We talk about growing up in Northern Ireland during the sectarian violence, you know, between the Catholics and the Protestants and how that affected his family directly. He had an experience very early on at Cambridge that kind of led him to, to, to the world that he was done, he, or he kind of worked himself into. Uh, so we talk about that. We talk about, you know, the science side and how uh, Christians really get bogged down with science and they feel like, you know, Christianity and science don't mix and kind of where that comes from. You know, the problem with ought versus is in terms of that worldview how he prepares for these high profile debates and how he deals with the smugness and, and the arrogance of some of the debaters, what he thinks the best Christian apologetic argument is. So that's very, very important. But also we, we talk about manhood in the church. I really enjoyed his answer on that. But then we ended today, or I, I almost failed to mention this. We did talk about old earth and young earth. Because if you followed the show for especially the last few months, I mentioned Young Earth a few weeks ago or months ago. And my, my goodness, it has just been I've been drowning in people's messages and, and all those different things since then. He gives a great, great, cogent, short answer to the old Earth versus Young Earth debate. OK, and we talk about a specific book, but then we wrap up with, you know, people that try to worship God with their feelings and not with their intellect, not with their minds. So a really, really fantastic show. One thing I did just want to remind you guys before we jump into the interview is that we are partnered with Origin Maine. So those of you guys have heard me talk about that on the show. So a great American company that makes all their products here in the United States. So guys, 
If you do jujitsu or if you're thinking about getting into jujitsu, they make the best geese in the entire game. They make fantastic rash guards as well, but also they just launched a whole bunch of new uh, types of jeans. And so they've got denim in three different washes now. So you can check that out on their website. They've got boots, some of the most incredible boots that you will ever wear in your life, including steel toe boots for those of you guys that need those. Um, and, and that's all on the origin side, but then on the Jocko fuel side, you've got Jocko fuel. So you've got Jocko go, you know, that's the, the energy drinks. They've got greens, they've got vitamins, they've got all kinds of different supplements. So guys, if you want to go to originmain.com, you can actually use my promo code so that you can get to try all those products and get a little bit off. So go to originmain.com, use the promo code Kyle at checkout, just my first name, K-Y-L-E at checkout, and you'll get 10% off of your order. Now guys, Man, I'm so grateful for this one. This is such an amazing thing that that we were able to put together for you guys. I'm I'm so happy about it and I've teed it up enough now, but I'm I'm almost getting myself. I'm ready to listen to this just like you guys are. So without further ado, let's get into it. John Lennox, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you today. Now I just gotta tell you, you might have the greatest accent in the history of my show. We've been around for, for quite some time, but that's part of the reason why I was so excited to talk to you. How often do you get that where people are just like, man, I just, I love hearing you talk. <laughs> I get it sometimes. I'm originally from Northern Ireland. And although I've lived in England for most of my life, I still haven't lost my accent. Well, uh, I did actually want to talk to you about that because you didn't just grow up in Northern Ireland. Uh, you grew up during all of the sectarian violence uh, between the Catholics and the Protestant groups, even though that certainly doesn't tell the whole story, but that's how it's normally categorized. But it, it's obviously a crazy thing to live through, especially during your formative years. T- talk to us a little bit about that, because I know that you know it was, it was a trying time specifically for your family. It was a, a trying time. I missed most of it. It left a deep impression on me because uh, my parents were very committed Christians, but they were not sectarian. And that was extremely important. And that showed itself in one particular way. My father ran a small town store. I suppose he had at most 30 employees or so. But He tried to employ people from both sides of the community, both Protestants and Catholics. And that was risky because he got bombed a few times. My brother was nearly killed sometime after I left home. And I asked him, Dad, why do you do this? It's so risky. He said, well, the Bible teaches us in Genesis that all men and women, irrespective of their worldview, are made in the image of God, and I intend to treat them like that. Now, that was fundamental for me growing up, and that has lived with me all my life, That, and I try to practice that no matter who I meet, no matter how difficult I may find them, or aggressive or disagreeing with me, it doesn't matter. Every man and woman is made in the image of God. Now, that's hugely important, actually, because... In this world where there are all kinds of voices trying to get us to listen to them, Jordan Peterson, who's very well known, particularly Mm -hmm. over there, he came across this statement in the Bible and he said, man, he said, that's that's the cornerstone of our civilization. And he hadn't realized that. And of course it is. 
And one of the reasons I'm a Christian is that you will not find that evaluation of human beings anywhere else, that we're made in the image of God. I mean, I'm an amateur astronomer. I love looking at the night sky. The heavens declare the glory of God, but they weren't made in his image. And you, whoever's listening to me now, you are. You've got infinite value to start with as a creature made in the image of God. So that was very important. The second thing about my parents growing up in that sectarian atmosphere was they didn't try and shove Christianity down my throat. They loved me enough to give me space to think, and they encouraged me to think. And so I was left with those two things, the value made in the image of God, and secondly, you think you make up your own mind. They taught me, and they opened my eyes to the value of Scripture, but they didn't force me. And that meant that when I left Ireland to go to Cambridge in 1962, I didn't immediately abandon Christianity. In fact, I never did, like many others of my age, because they'd never been allowed to come to their own conviction. And of course, they just threw it over when they became men and left home. I think that's an important thing to talk about. There's there's so much wisdom even packed in there. But you would think that if somebody were just given their religion by their parents, that as soon as they went to a place like Cambridge, that it would just absolutely fall to pieces. But yeah, you know, did. yes, yeah, and and so you know, you're a Christian, you're a mathematician, you're a bioethicist, but it doesn't seem like your faith ever wavered. But there's a very interesting story that I've heard uh, about your time at Cambridge. And this was, you know, a very formative experience for you at a formal college dinner uh, when you were, when you were very young, very new to Cambridge, where you were actually cornered in that. That's probably the best way to describe it by some pretty important people in a field that you wanted to be in. And uh, they kind of cornered you about your faith. So can you take us through that story? Well, it wasn't quite in a field <laughs> that I wanted to be in. Uh, the situation was that we had rather nice dinners from time to time, and I found myself sitting next to a Nobel, Nobel Prize winner. So he's a brilliant scientist, and I always tried to find out what people did, and I asked him a series of questions. And I risked asking him, I said, with all your research, did it ever occur to you that there was a creative mind behind the universe? And he said, no, it didn't. I never thought about it. Well, I wasn't sure that that was true, but that ended the conversation. He wasn't pleased. So I thought. But after the meal, he said, Lennox, come to my room. And that was not... Uh, an invitation, it was a command. I went to his room and I found two or three other major figures, no students. I was the only student and they put me in a chair, at least he did. And they remained standing so far as I recall. And he said, do you want a career in science, Lennox? And I said, I do, yes. I'd like to be a mathematician. Well, he said, if you want to make it, give up your naive faith in God in front of witnesses right now, because if you don't, you will never make it. So that was real pressure. <laughs> I found enough courage, I think, from God himself. I said, sir, what have you got to offer me that's better than what I've already got? And he came out with a philosophy that I knew about that was very weak, actually, 
And I said, if that's all you've got, I'll take the risk and I'll stick with what I got. And I got up and went out. It was formative, as you say, because it put steel into my heart. It made me resolve, firstly, that I would never try whatever academic position I reached in life. And of course, I had none at that time. I would never try to browbeat anybody like that. And of course, I thought that if he'd been a Christian and I'd been an atheist and he tried that tactic, he would have lost his job the next day. I learned that the playing field is not level. And it taught me a bit of the dark side of the pressure of the atheistic worldview. But it was very good for me because I suppose it was a preparation for facing lesser scientists like Richard Dawkins and so on in later life. Well, it's funny. You talk about, uh, you know, a playing field that's not level. Some Christians will take that as an excuse to not compete when obviously that is not what we're called to do. And we'll certainly get more into Dawkins here in a little bit. But I do just want to mention as an aside, I think it's absolutely incredible that you were actually at Cambridge in the early 1960s and actually got to see some of the last lectures of the one and only C.S. Lewis. We are huge fans. We are huge fans of C.S. Lewis here. And if we had more time, I would want to dig into that. But I I want to kind of go into uh, the area that you opened up with just science versus Christianity in general, because Christians have a tendency to get very, very intimidated by science. And they just accept that there is a schism between science and Christianity, even though they, they believe that God is omniscient, omnipresent, omni everything. And yet he's not, you know, omnipresent in the study of science, which I find to be odd, but you summarize the position of the science side or the, the scientism side in your book, can science explain everything? I'll read the quote here. Science is an unstoppable force for human development that will deliver answers to our many questions about the universe and solve many, if not all, of our human problems. Disease, energy, pollution, poverty. At some stage in the future, science will be able to explain everything and answer all our needs. So some people would call that the God of the gaps, but the the science version to where it's like, oh, we don't know the answer now, or oh, science is certainly changing. We see that with the new uh, space telescope that is potentially telling us that things are wildly different than ever, uh, whatever we understood with uh, the Hubble telescope versus the James Webb. So talk to me a little bit about the, the proposed or the perceived rather schism between science and Christianity in the eyes of Christians and why they just almost accept how scientists would say like, hey, we can't explain it now, but we will later. Well, not all of us do. I think the first thing to say is we need to distinguish very carefully between science and scientism, which is a word that you used. The view that you expressed that science will eventually answer all questions is scientism. And it is false. And it's easy to see it's false because science, if science is the only way that leads to truth, then that means that history can give us nothing. Psychology can give us nothing. Literature can give us nothing. And that's completely absurd. You see, the interesting thing is that the statement, science is the only way to truth, which is the heart of scientism, Mm. that's not a statement of science. So if it's true, it's false. It's logically incoherent. And I found it helpful to read another Nobel Prize winner, Sir Peter Medawar, who's a genius. And he said it's very easy to see that science cannot answer every question. In fact, it can't even answer the simple questions of a child. Where do I come from? Where am I going to? And what is the meaning of life? And he hit on a very important thing there. You see, if science answered everything, 
eventually, potentially, you'd have to close half the faculties in all universities around the world tomorrow because Mm -hmm. the natural sciences are only part. And some of the confusion here, Kyle, is this. The people get bamboozled and they think that science and rationality are coextensive. That's nonsense. History is a rational discipline. So is philosophy, language, literature, uh, and so on. Science is only part of rationality and it's only part of the way or, or the ways that we have to look at reality. Now, our late chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, Uh, made a very interesting, pithy statement that puts things very clearly. He says, science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts them together to see what they mean. And this is the most important thing, that people today, all of us, we're looking for meaning. Science doesn't give you that meaning unless you're a scientist and you find your meaning in your subject, but then even then it's limited. And we need a bigger world than what's given to us by science. I'm passionate about science, but I'm also passionate in pointing out that it doesn't tell us everything. Now, you also mentioned the notion of the God of the gaps, and I need to explain that that's the idea that if you bring God in to explain anything, then if science advances a bit more, it will push God out and push him out and push him out until he's not needed anymore. But that is mistaken thinking, you see. God is not the God of the gaps. (laughs) I often say to people, you know, read the first statement in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the bits of the universe we don't yet understand. No, it doesn't say that. (laughs) It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the whole show. God isn't the God of the gaps. He's God of the whole universe. He created what it is that scientists study. And uh, it's not any accident that the early pioneers in science, the really greats like Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Clark Maxwell, Faraday, they were all believers in God, most of them Christians. Hmm. And their worship of God, as far as science was concerned, was based on what they did understand, not what they didn't. Just as if you understand something about engineering, you can admire the working of a Boeing turbofan jet much more than somebody who doesn't. It's what you do understand. And when Isaac Newton discovered his famous law of gravitation, he didn't say, oh, now I know how it works. I've got a a law that describes it. I don't need God. No. He said, what a marvelous God who does it this way. And we need to change our thinking And one of the big problems is that people do not understand very much about the nature of explanation. They think that if you've got a scientific explanation, that's it. But that's nonsense, even in science. Take the law of gravity I've just mentioned. What does it explain gravity? No, it doesn't. Nobody has an idea what gravity is. Hmm. The law of gravity gives us a mathematical way of calculating 
the force between heavy objects and so we can work out the motions of the planets and so on and land a person on the moon. It doesn't tell us what gravity is. And Newton realized that. So even in science, um, science doesn't explain everything. And perhaps one of the most helpful ways to help people is that there are different kinds of explanation. If I ask the question, why is the water boiling? It's an illustration I use in my book, Can Science Explain Everything? Well, you can say it's boiling because the heat energy of a gas flame is agitating the molecules of water. They're moving faster and faster, and so the water is boiling. Yes. It's also boiling because I want a cup of tea. <laughs> right. Now, there are two explanations. Do they conflict? No. Do they compete? No. But they're different kinds of explanations. And I wish some of my scientific colleagues could realize that this is true at the level of the universe. And the fact is, no matter how much we understand how it works, that doesn't tell us either what it means or how it originated. And therefore, God isn't the God of the gaps. Not at all. Now, I could say a lot more about gaps and good gaps and bad gaps, but I think that's enough to get across to people the idea that there are some explanations that are scientific and they're mostly just useful in science. But, for example, my cup of tea illustration, people have been drinking tea for thousands of years before they understood any of the science behind it. That's a personal explanation, and it's the same with the universe. God is the explanation why there's a universe for scientists to study. And I think whenever you get into the world of scientism or all of that, you have to understand that there's a big difference between ought and is. And oh, a lot yes. of that's, things. That's morality, then. That's the issue there is a very different issue, but it's an important one. Just as I find the most credible explanation of the existence of the universe is that. God created it. That's the explanation that is the most explanatory power. So we have a big question when we're thinking about where does morality come from? Where does that feeling of oughtness come from? And David Hume, the Enlightenment philosopher with whom I disagree on many things, he was right when he observed that people just slide over from is to ought. That is, they see what a situation is, and they think you can deduce ought from it. I don't believe you can, and many philosophers don't believe you can. In other words, the existence of the universe and its obvious design is evidence for God, but so is that moral sense within us. The great philosopher Immanuel Kant was so impressed with this that on his tombstone in Königsberg, he, he says something like this. I don't get the quote accurately, but he says the things that continue to move him are the starry sky above and the moral law within. Both of those are evidences of God, and that resonates with what the Christian apostle Paul says in his book of Romans. I think additionally to to that, John, you know, another apologist has said something this way, uh, that every worldview has to answer origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Origin, where did we come from? Meaning, why are we here? Uh, uh, origin, meaning, morality. So what's the difference between good and evil and destiny? Where do we go when we die? And That's again, correct. 
yeah, you're, you're left wanting whenever you only look at those questions philosophically or only look at those questions scientifically. You need something outside of that, something greater than that. And I know you get into that in some of your high-profile debates. You mentioned Richard, uh, Richard Dawkins earlier, but you've debated Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Michael Shermer, Lawrence Krauss, Peter Atkins, Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, and, and others that, that I won't mention. And it's obvious that you go through a great deal of prep. You obviously spend some time with those people's books and their articles and their other interviews and debates. But one thing that I really wanted to ask you is it's almost hard for me to finish some of the debates that you have because I find I find it incredibly off-putting. I find these people to be very, very off-putting in these debates because there's a detestable level of smugness and arrogance of the people that you're debating. And that's very specific to Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens. But this dismissive point of view where all they have to do is say something in their British accent and get a smile or a laugh from the crowd, and then they don't have to actually dig in to the subject matter that you're bringing up. So for a guy like me, it's I usually have to be very, very cognizant of my attitude and my, my anger and all those different things when I'm entering into a discussion, just to make sure like, don't raise your voice, you know, just be a good example here. But for you, how do you do that in these high profile circumstances when these people are just so unbelievably smug? Well, I do it on the basis of what my father taught me Hmm. that of course, sometimes I'd like to wring their necks, and I'm I'm not impressed by their argument. But you know, when they get angry and lose their temper and and argue ad hominem, to my mind, intellectually, they've lost the plot already, hmm. and therefore I don't find that difficult to deal with. I simply let it happen, and by not reacting angrily but with a smile and just pursuing the questions and trying to keep objective and factual, I find find many of them do my work for me. They convince the audience that their case is very weak, which is exactly what I'm trying gently to point out. So with that, in addition to that, there are certainly arguments that you've heard, and, and you at this point in your career and having done all these public debates, you've basically heard all the arguments there are. There's not like an argument hiding out there that's going to stump you. But I'm curious, John, like, has there been a debate that you were doing with another scientist or some philosopher or just an atheist that can read where you were like in the moment stumped where you're like, oh, no, maybe maybe I'm a little bit outmatched here. I think I may have brought a squirt gun to a a nuclear bomb fight. Like, has a situation like that ever shown up? Not really. I mean, you feel a great deal of pressure. But as you say, I've heard most of the arguments before. I've taken people seriously, and I know what they're likely to say. It's more that sometimes, especially if there's not careful moderation, uh, there are certain things that are difficult to do. And one or two of the, the debates this has happened where I have discovered that I have to both moderate and be involved. That's very difficult. But in general, since I've heard most of the objections before and I'm willing to listen to new ideas and to think them through even on my feet, Hmm. in that sense, they don't frighten me or threaten me because I've learned over the years and I've been thinking about these things since my teenage that given a bit of time, Christianity has proved itself to be true in my experience, both intellectually and morally and spiritually, that 
ultimately, I feel there there's going to be a way through this. But the things that are hard, rather than stumping you, but the things that are hard are existential questions, particularly concerning the problem of evil and suffering, and more so when the person that you're discussing with has been through a very rough time. There you have to be very sympathetic and understanding. And also make it clear that we don't have any simplistic answers in that case, but we can bring to bear some kind of concept of the love of God and so on, explain to them where we find a possibility for an understanding that can take you through. And it's those big issues where you have to not only have an intellectual concern, but a real pastoral concern. I think beyond that, you also have a certain point in, in certainly these, these debates, but also in dyadic communication with friends or family members where it's pearls before swine. Uh, you're, you're literally debating with a person that refuses to even try to see your points. I've seen uh, prominent atheists in debates ba basically be asked, is there anything that would convince you? And they say, well, if I was convinced that there was a God, then that means I will have lost my mind. And it's like, okay, in addition to being circular, you're, you're creating a non-falsifiable claim. And it's like, what are we doing here? This isn't a debate. This is more, merely a description of your point of view and my point of view, and you won't even engage. But I guess for you, if, if there were an ace of spades argument, that you could use. So like if you could leave one Christian apologetics argument for the rest of humanity, what would it be? I mean, for me, it would be fine tuning because the fine tuning of the universe, because I feel like a lot of atheists kind of, if they're intellectually honest, have to admit that, yeah, that one, that one's got me. That one's really got me stumped. But what's, what's kind of that one argument that's just maybe above the others in your mind? Well, the hardest question to ask is what you've just asked. And that is a generic argument because there are all kinds of different people and what convinces one will not convince another. That's the first point. So I have no knockdown argument in that sense, but I was interested that the one you picked is fine tuning. I was once asked to, well, someone I debated publicly, a very eminent professor of philosophy at Oxford, who invited me to speak to his students about why I don't accept atheism. And then he said, I hope you'll use the best argument against atheism. Well, I said, if you tell me, I'll use it. <laughs> and right. he responded like you. He said, you know, from the scientific perspective, if I were ever to become a Christian, it would be because of fine-tuning. I think there's something there. And I think that's, that's important to underline because fine-tuning is apart from very few scientists, is mainstream, it's accepted. So it demands an explanation. The late Stephen Hawking said so. Our astronomer royal, uh, Lord Rees, said so, neither of whom are theists. And, and therefore, it is something that you can bring to the attention uh, of people. I, I think that's right. I think it is a personal, it is a powerful argument for the existence of an intelligence behind the universe. It, of course, doesn't bring you as far as Christianity, but it's a stepping stone. 
It certainly is. And I think for a lot of people, it's like, okay, well, let's, let's use your language. Let's use your field of study. Like explain to me why all these things seem to be so finely tuned because it it goes beyond mathematics. It goes beyond uh, any of your worldview to where you can't make a lot of the arguments that you normally would because of the specificity of some of the things that you can actually control for and solve for. Um, another subject matter that you actually spend a lot of time with kind of coming out of the debate world, and you dealt with this a lot in your book, Seven Days That Will Divide the World, is old earth versus young earth. And I made the mistake, John, of a few months ago on my podcast, just mentioning old earth and young earth. And then I just got drowned with emails from people that are on this side or on that side, mainly from young earth people. And like, I was like, oh no, because for me personally, I, the subject is interesting but it's not so interesting that I'm like, okay, I'm going to dedicate the next 10 years of my life to figuring out what my worldview is because it's like, we can't know exactly. Like we can't just know. And I'm like, I hope this is just something where one day we all just clink our glasses together in heaven and go, oh, John was right. Or oh, Tim was right. Or whoever was right. But if you could just give us an idea, like you don't have to get into what each side believes, but for you personally, in all your time thinking about this and writing about this and speaking about this, where have you landed on the debate for old earth and young earth for those in the audience that aren't aware already? Well, it's sad that Christians make themselves look ridiculous to the world that's not really interested in this stuff by fighting about it. And the sadness is because my response to it has not so much to do with science, although it has tangentially. It has to do with scripture. I take scripture very seriously. And It all has to do, of course, with Genesis 1. If we didn't have the statement in Genesis 1, nobody would ever have thought of it. But they do. And what clinches it for me is a very simple matter of Hebrew grammar. And I checked this carefully. I've written a book, as you know, Seven Days That Divide the World. People want to know in detail. But the basic thing is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, And then there follows a sequence, and God said, day one, day two, and so on. Now, the interesting thing is there are two past tenses in verbs in Hebrew, and one is used for the initial statement, and another is used for the sequence of days. And I quote one of the translators of the ESV, who also is training as a scientist beforehand. And he says the difference between those tenses is that the introduction is talking about an events that took place at an indefinite time before the sequence of days. So what does the Bible say about the age of the earth? Nothing whatsoever. So I'm happy with that, you know, that, that, that's the bottom line. And it's such a sadness when people fight and it's fear. And I've dealt with that in my book. Uh, it would take a long time to go into the details. But it's a sad thing to me that sometimes very bright young Christians are put off doing science because their pastors and teachers insist that they take a particular viewpoint. And often the dogmatism is in inverse proportion to their understanding both of scripture and science. I take both seriously. 
dogma, dogmatism. Those, those are the perfect words to describe this because it's like you figure out which team is yours and then you vehemently, you know, place your heels on the ground on that team's pitch. And you're like, okay, this is how we're going to operate moving forward. And again, you need to have a little bit of intellectual flexibility to at least understand what other people think. So whether you're an old earth person or a young earth uh, person, this is a, this is your commercial. Make sure you go and grab seven days that divide the world. It will be in the show notes. You guys can check it out. But one thing that I, I would love to discuss with you is something that I'm not really sure I've, I've heard you talk about publicly or write about, and that's the concept of manhood or masculinity in the modern church. And obviously the church in the UK versus the church in, in the US is a little different, even though you can look at it you know, colloquially as the Western church. But we focus on that a lot here at Undaunted Life because whenever I was bec- when I became a Christian, I was also learning what it meant to become a man, right? Because I was a teenager. And I felt like godly men and manly men were separated, right? The godly men were inside the church doing godly stuff and the manly men were outside the church doing man stuff. And I feel like culturally we bought into some of the caricature narratives of, you know, men or have big muscles and drive trucks and eat, you know, beef jerky and all those different things. And that's, that stuff's fine. But for me, I don't care if you're into that stuff or if you're into classical music and painting and and cooking gourmet meals. I care about whether you cultivate spiritual, mental and physical resilience on a daily basis, you know, all tethered to the creator God, like the perfect man Jesus did. But for you specifically, having been in the church and been in this world for decades and decades and decades, what would you say is the state of manhood or masculinity inside the greater Christian church? Well, that's impossible for me to answer because I just don't know enough. I think your emphasis is the better way to go, that God has made us in his image, both male and female, and we've got distinctive roles. And the most important thing is not how big my muscles are, they're not very big, but how big my character is my morality, the way in which I respect my wife and love my children and all this kind of thing. And sometimes people who think that's not very masculine need to think again because it's much harder uh, to keep your temper than to work out and build big muscles. Mm. Uh, There's a tendency to focus on the visual and that's what the children of israel did if you remember historically they wanted a king so they chose the biggest man they could possibly find right and he was brought to nothing by david the shepherd boy and and i think it's in terms of character being a man what is expected of me to live as a man in the world, to lead my family and so on, to treat my wife as a joint heir of the grace of life, that we're equally equal in the in the eyes of God. Those are, are very important things to me. But general comments on the state of this in the church, as on anything that's general state of the church, I'm not qualified to comment on that at all. You say you're not qualified, and yet you're dropping all kinds of knowledge on us. So don't be so shy and humble because the yes, size but of I'm one's. Speaking, I'm speaking simply from a biblical perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm not speaking from observation or statistics or surveys of concepts of manhood and all this around the world. That's all I mean. But scripture gives us enough. And if we were obeying it, mm-hmm. uh, there'd be less 
one thing that really strikes me that the late Rabbi Sachs pointed out, that men abandoning their wives and children has led to a huge moral wasteland, deprivation, crime, everything else. That's one glaringly obvious thing. That sense of lack of commitment. Our word is our bond. And when you take a marriage vow, for example, not to keep it and just exchange your wife for the latest model, that, that kind of stuff, that's not manly. That's cowardice. It's cowardice, and it's something that helps to break down society. It breaks down oh, the yes. things that ruins the to, family. That, that's yeah. right. But I mean, your your wisdom with the the word character, because I know a lot of guys that are concerned with the size of their muscles and not necessarily their relationship with their spouse, certainly not their relationship with God. And I, I encourage Christians to exercise and to take care of the one body oh, that sure. God gave them as a gift. And obviously no one would say that that's a bad idea, but it's like we don't focus as much on our character because you're right. The work of character is much more difficult than bench press or squat, even though those things are terrible and they're not any fun. But John, we'll make this the last question of the day. We'll go ahead and wrap up with this. Um, there's one thing that's concerning to me whenever I talk with, with Christians, but even people that are maybe on the fence about the whole Christianity thing is some people love to define their Christianity by a feeling that they have or feeling that they had, right? Maybe at church camp or maybe at some, you know, revival type experience and they don't feel the same way now. And they, they have this attack of, of conscience and salvation and all these things. And then you have people that are outside the church that are looking at all the feelings going on inside the church, all, all the worship services and all the crazy stuff. And they're like, where's the intellectual heft of, of what you're saying? And you, so you find a lot of Christians that are worshiping God with their feelings and not worshiping God with our minds. And you've done your entire life's work could potentially be summed up in helping us to worship God with our minds. But if you wouldn't mind, uh, speak to that a little bit about Christians that are maybe concerned about, well, I want to, I want to feel a certain way. I don't necessarily want to study these books. This is a, a crucially important question because we have moved into a touchy feely kind of generation and feelings are very difficult to reproduce and once you have them then you have to have a bigger high uh, you'd see this reflected in drug abuse uh, people start with a weaker drug and then they need a bigger high and a bigger high for me from the very beginning the basic conviction is that christianity is true not that it gives you good feelings. If God gives you good feelings, that's wonderful. But sometimes he'll give you rotten feelings, especially mm -hmm. if you're misbehaving. But the important thing is the truth question and the moral question. We can search for feelings and bypass morality. So long as I feel good, then that's fine. I must be a good Christian. But what about your moral obligations? What about your duties to your family? What about all those kind of things. And uh, to my mind, uh, the conviction that people want to see from outside is, okay, you believe this stuff, but why? What is the evidence that it's true? Now, you expect evidence of different kinds. And here's the way I would step back from your question and say there are two kinds of evidence. There's the objective evidence there's the truths of history, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But then there's our subjective evidence. God wants us to have real experience of him. But we can easily replace God by a kind of Santa Claus fantasy 
that God loves me and that's sentimental and he proves of everything I do and so on. But you don't find that in scripture. So what we need to do is to realize that what Christ calls us to is to commitment and to righteousness, to live morally uprightly. That that is the that is the supreme challenge in this situation. Now that can make you feel pretty rough or it can make you have a sense of satisfaction. The point is this, if what we do following Christ gives us a good emotional sense, that's wonderful. But once we replace that emotion that he gives with emotion that we try to generate ourselves in our own heads, then we're lost because that's the sure way to almost to going mad because you're never satisfied with that. So it's very important that our feelings may go up and down. They'll go up and down if we eat a rotten egg or bad food or something like this, is that Suppose I was to say to someone, do you feel married? And it's a very interesting question to ask because, well, most of the time you're not thinking or feeling it at all. But the fact is, if you're married, then you are. It is a fact. And when feelings go astray, then it's very important to remind ourselves of the basic facts, that God's love is independent of our feelings, that Christ's death for me is independent of my feelings, uh, and so on. That's that's hugely important. And we need to inject that factual side and intellectual side into our generation that is looking for well-being without much facts around it. I think it's very important to realize that if you depend on feelings, it is as if you have your feet planted firmly in midair. And yes, you know, right. certainly other people have talked about that, but we need to bring those feet down to the ground and make sure that they are attached to and grounded in something real. So, uh, John, this was an absolute treat. I, I feel so uh, blessed and privileged that we were able to make this happen, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, that's fine. Thank you very much. A very interesting conversation. John Lennox, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with the great John Lennox. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to John's website, so you can check him out there. But then I've got a link to four of his books. He's got way more, but four of his books. So Can Science Explain Everything? And then the other book that we mentioned in this episode, Seven Days That Divide the World. And then a couple that we didn't have time to get to, Gunning for God, Why the New Atheists Are Missing the Target, and God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is a song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah